A roast as dark as the night, perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes, he's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Rise, humanity, don't be weak. Slay your enemies and kill everyone. Kill everyone who stands in your way. Yours is the proudest nation. Even if people say that you're shitty, just fucking kill them. Kill everyone. Or I forget. It's weirdly a nod towards the holocaust we don't really get it but it is fun oh okay listen listen all right as <laughs> something happened around season three we're doing attack on titan by the we're way we're doing right, attack on titan <laughs> where uh because the anime took so long to produce people started reading ahead in the manga and in the manga they started doing things that i'm gonna say were pretty holocausty but we didn't quite know where they were going. So all these still like frames out of context had all these uh, Titan Jews in their Titan armbands <laughs> and their Titan ghettos. And everyone was like, oh, fuck, is this whole thing been a weird anti-Semitic thing the whole time? <laughs> and the series is now over. It's played out. And like, no, it's it was just an awkward like it was I, I'm, I'm standing tall on this. It's just a Japanese guy who was picking and choosing from a million different World War conflicts. And yeah, he used some Holocaust imagery, but the Titans are not Jews. All they did right. not make the Titans Jews. Speaking of which, it's me, your armor Titan Brock Lesnar. Titan Holden Bruiser Holden McNeely. Yeah, and I'm your uh, <laughs> weird, quiet Japanese murder machine, Mikasa Ackerman Wizard Jake. Very good. We've made it through the intro, Jake. And today, as we already mentioned, we are talking about Attack on Titan. Attack on Titan probably got me back into anime a little bit. I think um, it was kind of perfect timing because I think it was just really just predated me. Uh, doing this show with you, mm -hmm. which is great because I feel like the anime that we cover is such a big part of the show. I mean, I'm glad that we cover so many different things in this show, video games, movies, TV, and especially anime. Um, and anime is a lot of the more interesting stories too just because it is... You know, we don't know them as well. There's not a yeah. Netflix show about how did this anime get made with like quirky, you know, bad jokes in it and stuff. You know what? Holden, yeah, you're, still you're still mad. You're still mad. <laughs> Listen, they have access. They have a budget. We just have lovely people on Patreon and a weird amount in of there, gummy ads. Netflix. We've got a show to pitch for you. It's way different. It's it's way called cooler. everything you've ever loved was made by sociopathic weirdos. <laughs> uh, and this is no different. Attack on Titan. Definitely. I guess it was one of those weird moments where I was like, "Wait, can I watch the animes again?" Like. 
I had taken such a long break. I think I probably hadn't watched much anime since like college, mm-hmm. and not really sure why, other than you know access and stuff like that. Because back in the day, it was like you had to have a buddy who had the DVD collection. I mean, I remember when my friend brought over. Uh, shout outs to Tim. I believe it was Tim. Uh, Dean, who brought over the box set of Neon Genesis Evangelion, and uh, we watched it that way. And, and you know, that was kind of the way you did it. You'd have to go find some weird DVD store that had it, and sometimes it'd be in the back, and it'd be guarded by some, like, gangly guy who was like, come into the back if you want the anime DVDs. I'm like, dude, I'm falling for this before. You're going to goose me the second. They're always in a little box in the corner. You're going to goose me the second I bend over to look at the box. Uh, no, not this time. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay. So you already admitted you were going to do it. It's never all over the clothes. That was the thing. He <laughs> yeah. just really wanted a little, just a quick little goose. Yeah, just a go- the goose cherry. I remember that guy. <laughs> we hated that guy. Uh, died, uh, drank himself to death a few yeah. years after that. But rightfully so. Rightfully so. God, live it. Uh, but uh, then I think I turned around and like Crunchyroll was the thing, and on anime was just hitting. I think I watched Attack on Titan on fucking Hulu. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Anime was just hitting, and Netflix decided, hey, we're going to be anime giants all of a sudden, and just the ease of access. And um, and then this weird show came along, and I mean, and maybe that's my thesis question, mm-hmm. like my my that I want to pose. What is it about Attack on Titan that brought so many people into anime for the first time? Brought me back into anime because. At you know a glance, it's kind of a bizarre thing. I mean, it's just these uh, these weird, creepy ass giant humanoid kaiju's. This strange like medieval setting with these like very German architectural influences, and you know, I mean, great high flying action for sure. Um, and I guess I could go ahead and answer part of it and just say that opening, it's every anime, it's like Death Note or, you know, you can name so many different ones that uh, just uh, D- Demon Slayer uh, that we just covered, you know, where, where it, man, as long, and here, here Academia, as long as you have that opening one, two episode punch that just immediately draws you, be like, oh, fuck, we're watching all these now. And this really did have that in spades because... Um, th- this definitely set- gave you a mystery box oh, right out the gate. More a mystery basement, if we have to be specific. Yeah, mystery basement, exactly. And and a very, you know, mixed with very stunning visuals of just not your daddy's anime, just very weird, you know, I just feel like the standouts are the Titans and how bizarre they look and how striking they are because they're not just peep giant people. They just have such a creepy vibes them the weird mouth shapes and everything and all that stuff and um you know that definitely worked for it for me and so yeah that that really started me down the path and not too long after that I was watching JoJo and I was watching you know all the kind of newer more uh, Madoka, you know, Magica. Magica, Madoka Magica yeah it was my fa- was my favorite of 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 that time getting back in so yeah, Jake, uh, what's your experience? I definitely just yeah, that was the first one though that that since my days with fucking Cowboy Bebop and Neon Genesis and even Dragon Ball Z, uh, you know, and then a huge long many years of not, and then all of a sudden it was like it was almost like anime was like cool again or something or mm-hmm. cool for the first time actually uh, for for some reason and and palatable and it was something I was talking to like my um, uh, now uh, nephew in law mm-hmm. is that how I would say it my my 
wife's uh, nephews were, were talking about that, and we're talking about One Piece, and you know all this kind of stuff. But it seemed like Attack on Titan was that first one. Uh, of its fold that I think drew a bunch of people in. What what do you think, Jake? So Attack on Titan is a fascinating conflagration of all these very weird influences and all these weird themes uh, coming together at a time when anime desperately needed a fresh new idea. And um, uh, around this time in the early 2010s, we were kind of at it in between stage for a big for anime to be big in America you basically need a huge tentpole shonen uh action show to kind of keep everyone united i remember in the 2000s it was naruto before that it was dragon ball one piece always keeping up the rear but at this specific stage around 2012 uh 2013 2014 we were in a weird stage. Um, the death of uh, kind of the advertising DVD, or not even DVD, but there was uh, there was a lot of big changes happening in the way that animes made their money, and it was more merchandising that was driving sales, and that led to a lot of uh, what people call moe shows, a lot of cute girls, a lot of uh, slice of life, a lot of just like obsessible female characters that you can buy figurines and pillows and all their accessories of over was where the industry was really focusing its energy. And it came to uh, the creation of Studio Wit, which I'll talk about, that uh, needed a bombastic-ass project to kind of make their way in the world and show the industry what they were capable of. And uh, this weird little manga by this weird guy who had weird artwork and just a bunch of like insane, never before seen uh, action set pieces really just enticed this studio. And it was their execution, this combination of 2D and 3D animation, these insane, unbroken uh, shots of these characters flying all over the place and the aesthetics just came together in a way that let itself kind of stand out from the crowd and kind of, uh, uh, in a way, it was kind of like how Game of Thrones came out of nowhere and mm-hmm. became the most important TV show because it had the budget, it had the violence, it had the titillating mysteries, it had these larger themes. It was uh, kind of a similar way, a world that did not know magic all of a sudden being thrust in this larger-than-life uh, scenario. It's, it all kind of came together and it was the dedicated talent of the people involved. It was the uh, kind of, you know, it was taking things like a fantasy setting and kind of doing a very weird twist on it. I know a lot of people kind of also refer to it as steampunk because yeah, the maneuver gear vibes, and all that. For sure. Yeah. It all kind of came together and was executed pretty flawlessly. Uh, I know when I first saw it, I was blown away. Like you said, those first few episodes, that one-two punch, you, there might be, I don't know, what is it, like four minutes before the Colossal Titan shows up just looming over the wall? Yeah, And you're totally. already, even though you saw the opening sequence, you understand what the show is about, that like first four or five minutes of peaceful medieval life with Aaron and Mikasa and Armin, and like you're just right in there with them with the shock and terror as this giant fucking face looms over the wall for the first time. Yeah. You are immediately in. Especially when they're just like, we've been safe in here for a hundred years, you know? And and then being invaded in that way 
by this giant monster. It just really, it does something. It does something to the psyche. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes a chord, uh, especially with the look of those monsters. I think if they didn't look, if they weren't like, they look like humans, but there's just something going on that just makes them, honestly, like kind of like J-horror monsters, mm-hmm. you know, essentially. Like they're just, the mouth is a little too wide. The, the, the eyes are a little too small. Like, there's just the whole their physicality. It just it, there's just something off. I mean the uh, the 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 grotesqueness of giants was a theme yeah. in Western literature and even Eastern literature for you know centuries before this. When we think of the grotesque, we think of stuff like oh, I can't believe I'm going to quote this: the 16th century novel Life of Gargantua and Pantagruel oh, that they made oh, me right, read please. when I was an English major in college, where there was just this. <laughs> This horror and comedy of describing giant turds that would clog a river. There's something about the human body distorted. Yes, they, and, and, and Were they influenced by my time in the bathroom this morning? <laughs> all right, please. I had a little too many beers last night. It's it's all right. I'll be okay. But, the you know, the this the scale of the action, it, it somehow combined the uh, tactics and the thrill of combat that's in a regular action anime with the scale of destruction and the actual, like, I'm, I'm trying to just the the spatial uh, chaos of a kaiju adventure. Yeah. It's, it feels like it was all slammed together, like, randomly, and yet every single piece of it is compelling and comes from a previous form of art. Like, it's fascinating. Yeah, when you mix in that analog vibe, that analog feeling of the weaponry that the people are using to defend, the way that they're just flying around the city, but it's all with, like, wires and all this equipment that's Mm -hmm. very specific. And so they're not just, like, flying people, you know what I mean? And and, uh, the way that they have to, you know, really work with kind of more crude materials to take down the titans that it just it gives this like awesome visual flair that that would be cheapened by like dudes just jumping real high yeah. you know without the assistance of that those sorts of things and I, we don't see a ton of that type of architecture in a, in a anime as well like this weird german architecture we'll talk about some of the influences of what what brought that about but that that as well i think is is just gives it this unique feel. And I mean the vibe the, the coloration of it, mm. even of the anime, just feels different. That like brown toned look. And it just, it just, it definitely, yeah, it's just again, it's not, it's nothing like Dragon Ball. It's nothing like what I think Western audiences up to that point considered like the anime to be. Mm-hmm. So it just brought something new. And that, there you go. I think you hit on exactly why that brought me back in. Because so I was like, oh. They've changed some things about the anime in the past decade. I maybe I should get back in and see what else that there is to offer. So I think it's a really good gateway drug for a lot of new and returning anime fans. And definitely was the first time I was talking about an anime with friends. I know my friend Carly was watching it as well and just blasting through this the, that first season. Um, but then there's also the drought that happens mm-hmm. in between seasons one and two. And that, that anticipation may have even helped it in certain ways, because I know people, we were all like psyched as fuck to get to go back. And also it, it probably got a lot of fans like rewatching that first season, mm-hmm. you know, and becoming just really wrapped up in the whole thing. It's, uh, that and one punch man kind of came out around yes. a similar time yes. and it was a kind of. 
This was also during peak uh, nerd. I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, we were still going strong in loot crate culture. Yeah, and the Marvel movies were coming out, and so yeah, it was okay to be a nerd for the first time. It was like cool to be a nerd. It was hip to be square for the first time ever. Yeah, it's you know plenty of uh, of articles on the old dorkly.com were written in praise and riffing on Attack on Titan. Sure, uh, you were. Logging into your Tumblr page to uh, read your favorite super hulak fictions. It was a, it was it was a it was a golden age. Let's say. Yeah, I was looking on um uh the Wikipedia whatever, and you know at the bottom where it was like cultural references. You know they always kind of have that page or that chunk, and it was referenced in an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. You know, I mean that's ridiculous. Like. How I mean, I'm sure there have been animes referenced in The Simpsons, but it just feels crazy to me, you know that that would be so surreal to you know see uh, Bart going Super Saiyan back in the yeah. day, you know, like it just it's just crazy that it it made it into the mainstream in such a big way for how weird it is. At the same time, it is weird, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you didn't. I mean, you saw you you saw how it ended, man. It is. It went places. Yeah, places that uh, you. Did not know it would go when you first dived in. Uh, All right, here we go. Attack on Titan is a Japanese manga series written and illustrated by Hajime Isayama that has been adapted into a very popular anime series. The story revolves around a boy named Aaron Yeager and his quest to eliminate the Titans, uh, giant humans who attack and feed on his town, which is protected by three circular walls, which one day are breached by new, more powerful types of Titans. One of them destroys his mother, giving him that motivation to go on the quest. And man, shit gets batshit from there. Also, I think I'm leaving it kind of at that for now in terms of plot points. I think we may get into some spoiler territory at the very end. And if we do that, we will definitely announce that. And it will be the last chunk of episodes. So if you aren't caught up, if you wanted to dive in and didn't want anything spoiled, and there are big spoilers for this show, um, we will announce it. And then the rest of the episode will be spoilers. So you won't be like missing out on too much Um if, if that is the case. All right. Uh, let's start with the man, the myth, the legend. Hajima... Isayama, you know, I'm always holding my breath going into a uh, subject revolving around a mangaka because a mangaka, the the writer illustrator of manga series, it sounds so much sh- cooler than cartoonist. So much cooler, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> mangaka, dude, it sounds like a fucking discipline. You know what I mean? It's dope. You got into the woods and be trained to become a mangaka. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, I was so happy to see um, this person down to do interviews, mm-hmm. not hiding behind a Oh, a yeah, fake this avatar. is the first mangaka we've had for a while that is like, this is my face. Hi, I'm yes. the guy who made it. Nice to meet you. I'm a person. Ask me anything you want. Yeah, there's interviews. There's there's uh, help, actual helpful resources for... In fact, I, I had a harder time finding stuff for the anime. Jake, though, um, you uh, had more stuff on that. Oh, I, I yeah. was sh- shocked to see that this guy was actually like, Happy to talk about the process. Happy to talk about the influences and all that, especially uh, considering what some of those influences are. We'll get to the horny porn visual novel that influenced this in just 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 a second here. Uh, so uh, Isayama, born in Oyama, Japan, Isayama started submitting his manga to contests as early as high school. Early on, due to issues he had with body image and self-esteem, he was drawn to the idea of heroes that become stronger through transformation. Isayama said, which is a, a I'll just say a, kind of an integral point to the to the series that is comes to be revealed later. Isayama said, I grew up in a rural area, so I was surrounded by the same people ever since preschool. By the way, 
this dude after my own heart. I feel this so hard. Um, I will just say I went to private school starting at fifth grade, and I was with those people from fifth grade mm-hmm. until senior year. If you were you came in in fifth grade, you were your clique was defined by sixth or seventh grade. Um, you were your whole deal was defined who who you were going to be able to date, uh, anything like that. And for me, it was no one, and my <laughs> clique was my like three friends. Uh, so, so I then totally you bit feel your this. hand, and then just a wall of muscle and viscera appeared around <laughs> you, and you just yes. yelled a bunch. A hundred percent. Yeah. You see, I said uh, surrounded by the same people ever since preschool, and it felt pretty weird when people started dating all of a sudden in junior high school. It seemed gross to me. We'd grown up together almost like siblings. I, dude, I just feel this so hard. There were just the the two elementary schools feeding into the one junior high school. So in each grade, you had two classes of just over 40 students. And it was I graduated with like 90 people. And it was not a fun situation to be in. It wasn't so much the dating as it was the peer pressure and the whole rah-rah school spirit mindset. And I just couldn't deal with it. I, I just feel this so hard. I hated middle school. Like my, I, I escaped into comedy. I escaped into film and theater and all that stuff. And uh, Isayama escaped into manga. It's really interesting uh, that you mention all that stuff because one of the things that definitely sets apart Attack on Titan is the amount of rah rah nationalism and yeah. militarism <laughs> and True. care for the comrades in a way that, again, this was pre uh, 2016, this was pre. Uh, Charlottesville, there was actually, we had kind of, we were still in that, you know, that Obama kind of era where we had like, yeah, we, we fixed everything. We're in a post-scarcity, uh, uh, neoliberal, happy place. And uh, the fact that through Attack on Titan, you could kind of just play with this kind of national purpose, like, you know, we are the hunters, kind of, I'm going to say, a little fashy aesthetic. And a lot of people did point out when it came out at the time that, like, hey, you know, the aesthetics of this are not, like, you don't actually want to live in this society, but in the realm of anime, you could at least have fun with that because, Mm. okay, our heroes do find strength and companionship and uh, support within the uh, this military system to protect the homeland. And you can kind of you uh, you can kind of like engage with it on that level. Obviously, if you're walking around with giant swords talking about how we have to protect the walls, I wouldn't actually want to be friends with you. Yeah, take that, Stuart, you <laughs> fuckface. That guy, he keeps coming by my door. He's 13 years old. Shows I'm like, up I'm on your lawn doing baby. his katas. Yeah, exactly. He's like, we we love the wall. He keeps talking about he laments the old, good, old Berlin. I'm like, all right, dude. I don't even know what that what that's getting towards. You know, he thought, he, he like only watches the first half of Pink Floyd's The Wall, mm-hmm. you know, just only loves that part of it where they just love it. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> all right, I'll stop on that. I don't know. I just think it's very funny that the thing <laughs> that drove him to become an artist led him to write a story that actually deeply is a fantasy about excelling rah rah school spirit yeah yeah. within that world so at the time though in middle school uh junior high school instead he escaped into otakudom as he refers to it said i liked how it put reality off to the side i liked the idea that this might be a world produced by electrodes stuck on our brains i thought it'd be awesome to actually be a battery for machines like in the matrix Um, which is funny because we just covered the matrix sequels isiamas also said if there's a character to my work i think it'd be the sort of endless adolescence 
sort of stuck there as and and I would say too again I hate to bring it back to keep bringing it back to myself but I I just I feel that so hard I'm so obsessed with like shows and movies about those middle school years it was such a weird hard time it was that time when I just felt like outside of society in a huge way and so I'll always kind of go back to that the manga itself Isayama's artwork is not as refined as a lot of the other um creators we've covered there's a scratchiness to it there's uh, a little bit he doesn't have all the tricks of the trade that a lot of longtime established veteran mangakas can uh utilize and uh, to the point of being a little amateurish at times but there is a scratchy almost visceral kind of energy to his artwork uh in a way that i kind of am reminded of like rob liefeld in the 90s that kind of uh, almost that same adolescent energy where there's a young artist just like his pen, the the ink lines are as scratchy and fraying as the characters themselves who are just like feeling these intense emotions and raging as hard as possible. It's kind of it, the, the level of violence and extreme melodrama and the rage contained in those pages very much feels like a very adolescent story. Yeah, and in fact, during his awkward junior high school days, he really was drawn to the grotesque. He said, doodling as a kid, I started drawing ugly stuff. And by the time I was in junior high, it got so that I was drawing ugly things exclusively. Just as everyone's handwriting is unique to them, I think my art is idiosyncratic to me in its ugliness. People got a kick out of it, and it somehow caught on. (laughs) So instead of trying to become more refined, he leaned into this crude style in order to stand out. He said, I was scared of being a run-of-the-mill tree with run-of-the-mill leaves that had blend right into the forest. Better to have memorable art, even memorably bad art, and stand out. Which you brought up one punch man kind of yeah. has a similar vibe. And even our uh demon slayer episode, we talked about how you know the the anime production studio took a kind of a cruder thing and just be- made it just fucking bedazzled on the screen in this amazing way. Um, after he graduated, he studied at the manga design program of the arts department at Kyushu designer Gakuin. Uh, in 2006, he wrote and illustrated a 65-page one-shot version of Attack on Titan, which was given the, quote, Fine Work Award, uh, like a newcomer award, essentially, in the magazine Grand Prix promoted by Kodansha Limited, the largest Japanese publishing company which puts out manga magazines, Nakayoshi, Afternoon, Evening, and Weekly Shonen Magazine, among others. The one-shot was a little different from what we get with the series in that the town is enclosed by giant trees, Titans can be in disguise and then evolve into a large Titan at will. That that sort of is in the show, but it's it's introduced in this one shot in a bit of a different way. Uh, the main character manages to transform into a Titan to fight off intruding ones, ends up getting killed in this one shot. Isayama won a prize for his work. This prize was won at the age of 19. And uh, so he also apparently around this time submitted his work to Weekly Shonen Jump, of course, right? The big one. We always talk about a One Piece, Demon Slayer, Dragon Ball, all of it, <laughs> all on Weekly Shonen Jump. However, and again, really in- interesting insight into this guy. They, th- he really stuck with his guns. They asked him to make a bunch of changes to fit in more with the magazine style. 
And it's crazy to me because at, at that age, I would have been like, yeah, whatever you want. I just want to be a professional. And you're the biggest magazine ever. But no, he stuck with his guns. He was like, no, I'm, I'll take it somewhere else. And so he took it uh, back to Weekly Shonen Magazine. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, th- that initial success with the prize, though, uh, he then with that, he then moves to Tokyo and uh, works for a while at an Internet cafe. And uh, uh, that's how uh, and works towards his full on attempt at uh, being a mangaka. And it was while there that he got his initial inspiration, actually, for Attack on Titan. Um, one of his initial inspirations. He was always obsessed with kaiju stuff. I think I have more on that later. But while working there, uh, he the the big anecdote for, for from him in a lot of interviews, while working there, he is attacked by a customer. This customer grabs him by the collar, and he's just screaming at him. And he's trying to reason with him. He's trying to talk to him. And the guy just, he's just out of it. He's just out of his mind in anger, maybe just out of his mind. And there's no communication, total breakdown. And he's just in this situation where he has, quote, the fear of meeting a person I can't communicate with. And that is essentially where he got the inspiration for the Titans and the town of humans and just having this impending force where it's other humans, but... There's no reasoning. There's no discussion. They're just going to eat you. They're just going to attack you. And I think that is a very fascinating. And and I get oh my that God. too. Like it was around the time of the Walking Dead was getting big too. Mm. And the Titans are especially before they're even like fully explained within the mythology of the story. They are just like big zombies. They are mindless. Um, uh, in another interview, Isayama talks about how the design for the Titans came from a horror manga he read as a kid called Nube and the Master from Hell, uh, where there was a haunted Mona Lisa painting mm. where if she, the Mona Lisa saw someone she wanted to devour, she, her face became this like wide, disgusting grimace full of like teeth, and its expression would not change. It was single-minded and unreasonable to deal with until she devoured her victim, and then she would return back to a placid state. And uh, he talks about how uh, it scared the hell out of him as a child, but uh, he picked the face expressions uh, trying to find an unpleasant look. If you, He says, if you look the Titans in the eye, they don't change their faces from the moment they encounter mm. someone, even after they kill them. They never stop uh-huh. smiling, kind of as if it was not a smile at all, but an expressionless face that gives the opposite effect of what a smile would be. It's an obnoxious emotion, and I chose to do it that way for a reason. It was nastier. It was better. I'm glad you found that quote because that really does explain what I was grasping at in the beginning when I was trying to just be like, why is it so weird? Like, why is it so off-putting? There's just, and that's totally what it is. It's that unchanging grimace face that just, ugh, it just makes you. Their childlike smiles really adds to the insult of the 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 wounded pride of our characters that yeah. someone can take away so from you know Aaron's mom dies in the is devoured in the first episode by the smiliest of the titans the uh, one yeah. you know uh, the most grinning i think they even call it colloquially the grinning titan and it's kind of like an uncanny valley thing too where it's like they're humans but there's just something off that makes them not fully yeah it's totally that unchanging expression that weird grin that never goes away uh, and also another inspiration of course 
uh, he had had a love of kaiju and giant monsters since early childhood. He, he would have dreams of running from giant monsters and tripping and uh, falling down and you know those kinds of anxiety dreams that definitely uh, propelled him towards this concept. And then also uh, just a, a weird passion for MMA, uh, mixed martial arts fighting. Uh, Isayama said, I've liked thinking about monsters since I was in preschool. And that led me to eventually take an interest in combat sports too. There's a mixed martial artist I like named uh, Alistair Overeem who has has this small face and developed trapezes that gives him a really intimidating physique, which is where I got the design from for the Beast Titan, Mm. the ape-like Titan that is revealed later on. He also used martial artist uh, Yushin Okami as inspiration for another Titan that would spoil some shit, so I won't say exactly which one, as well as Brock Lesnar for the Armored Titan. That's right. WWE superstar turned MMA fighter Brock Lesnar. And if you look at that design, it's completely Brock Lesnar. Now, Jake, I think it's about time we uh, talk about ugh, love love. <laughs> All right. So we mentioned it briefly in the uh, Demon Slayer episode because uh, the studio that produced the anime got its start doing an adaptation of a visual novel. There's just something in otaku culture where the visual novel, a, uh, a game that is mostly told through text boxes and static artwork that's kind of just shuffled around, uh, is a essential part of the otaku experience. You know, you've you've played uh, Dream Daddy. You've played a yes. couple of visual novels, English oh, ones. I played some Japanese ones. Hatoful uh, Boyfriend well. is another great mm-hmm. example in a crossover hit. But the series is just irrevocably pornographic. Mm. It's uh, Japan is way loosey goosier when it comes to porn and how it's viewed in society. Uh, even seemingly family friendly uh, media properties can have like casual nudity in it. We can get into those reasons why in a while. But the fact is, is that the amount of cost in terms of labor and just material costs needed to make a visual novel is drastically less than uh, even an entire anime series or even a manga series. You just have to write a story and make some base artwork and then have some like special drawings done. And for far less of an investment, you can make an original story with a built-in audience of fans eager for content. And so surprisingly, the visual novel is an insanely diverse and insanely innovative medium uh, through which you can tell a lot of genre stories. And so as an otaku, as he said, wishing to retreat into the Matrix, there was one game <laughs> that really uh, helped him get his groove when it came time to start making Attack on Titan. Get his grooves, an interesting way to put it. Yeah, go on. And it's called Muv Love. Uh, the original one, uh, the game that he's talking about, has a very interesting format where it actually consists of two parts. Muv Love Extra, uh-huh. which is as wrote a standard dating sim ass horny uh, visual novel as you can. Uh, you know, uh, Takaru is just an average high school kid. And then one day a beautiful young lady is in his bed. What, what, what? But then his childhood friend catches them together and she's like, Baka. And they go crazy. And like, uh, they And then there's a rich lady who's also in love with Takaru and uh, they go to high school and they're just like, oh, it's so which girl does he choose? Oh, geez. You play through the game. You choose one of the girls. You have uh, graphic sex with them. You just you just shoot. You just shoot your load. And then the game ends. 
Then a new screen appears and the game now says Muvlove Unlimited. And the game starts once again with Takaru in his bed and Takaru's like, wait a minute, I was uh, this already happened. What's going on? I don't understand. And upon he leaving his house, he realizes that his entire neighborhood has been destroyed by aliens and a giant mecha is fighting them. And all the characters have been reconvened in a giant galactic-wide battle for the survival of humanity. Insane. Also, in this alternate reality, you can have really graphic sex with a bunch of ladies, including some... uh, I'm, if you import this game, you might get a call. I'm just saying this. Yeah, it's got some really heavy stuff in it. And that's kind of what's interesting about, you know, getting asked about this or citing this is it's got stuff that apparently is just really grotesque and um, upsetting and of a sexual nature involving the aliens mm-hmm. and um, just like violent stuff and really, really upsetting shit, especially to us over here in the West. Um, but, uh, yeah, Isayama had this to say about it in general, um, this game in which aliens invade and humankind is on the brink of annihilation and yet people are still at each other's throats. It came with a thick commentary booklet. The game's universe also had Japan emerge victorious from World War II and retain its imperial system. And then there's the Eurasian continent already occupied by the al- continent already occupied by the aliens, making Japan the front line for the war of resistance. So that's an interesting take. Then that he was influ- influenced by that uh, for for Attack on Titan, especially like Japan being victorious through World War II and that sort of thing. There is layers of like generational bullshit happening in uh, Attack on Titan. Because <laughs> yes, you can think of America's relation to occupied Japan and Japan's yeah. constant national dialogue with itself over yes. uh, its role as a former uh, empire that cre- uh, 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 that perpetrated uh, various atrocities in its own imperial campaign, uh, the atrocities committed against it from foreign powers, uh, like the atomic bombing, uh, just from history itself, from World War II, like we talked about, and a lot of people kind of like got head scratchy about. Even um, Isayama himself uh, was born on uh, the Kyushu Island of Japan and the neighboring Ryukyu Islands, which had their own bloody battle and a weird imperial relationship with the main island of Japan and like Edo and Tokyo and all of this thing's happening. The uh, the relationship and the identity and the psychology of oppressor and oppressed runs through Attack on Titan. And as a, just a Japanese citizen, it's just part of the background uh, uh, radiation of your national psyche. And it definitely, like, it's, you know, we are all products of history and even a dumb show in which a uh, big anime Brock Lesnar has a big MMA fight in a German <laughs> village ha- can have some shit going down in the background. Oh, for sure. And as for the pornographic elements of Muvlove, Love, Isayama defends it saying, well, there is porn in it, but I suspect that nobody's all that interested in that part. The fetishes are a bit too esoteric. Girls getting dissected by the aliens, that sort of thing. But it does have Moe characters, and I think it takes its inspiration from Puella, Puella Magi Madoka Magica and how it turns into hardcore gore with humans suddenly getting eaten and stuff. Um, Moe is a type of character that is endearing to the to the viewer, mm. endearing to the reader. So yeah, it just really weird, man. That 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 unpacking that as a huge inspiration is just so strange, especially like th- there you have it. 
I, I gave you a little bit of a description of some of the more disturbing elements. Uh, so Isayama, after winning that prize for the one shot, said, I didn't think about it for a while after that, until I was 22 or 23 or so, when my editor asked me to consider making that old one shot into a long-term series, uh, which, again, very similar to the Demon Slayer mm-hmm. episode, at which point I spent a half a year coming up with the, I, the, with the details of that whole world. He spent a lot of time considering what life would be like after the world was destroyed and how isolation would feel. And actually, uh, he talked in this interview about how he thinks he would do pretty well in a world like that, that he could actually, uh, you know, a typical mangaka, right? He's like, I'd be fine. I, you know, I just do my thing in, in total isolation. His editor well, he comes from the boonies, so of course he'd be all right in a quiet village keeping right. to himself. I will say one of the cool things, I always like to read this about any uh, anybody, as why I was so hyped up for Game of Thrones, uh, which did not uh, end up going so well, at least not yet. Maybe the books will come out and change things, but uh, his editor pushed hard for him to have an ending in mind before formally starting the series, and he always has known what each what will happen in each arc before going into it. And so it's just about beating out this, uh, the plot and storyboards and, you know, uh, all that good stuff. But he always has known where the, where the whole thing was going to, was going to go. And I think that definitely helps it be this contained thing. So the manga is fully out, uh, has been fully out. I believe there's still some more season four, right? Right. Yet to come the out. The manga has reached its conclusion. Uh, would you believe it involves a big, giant battle with thousands of titans? Would you believe that that's what happened? <laughs> Possible. But uh, there are a lot. I, we won't get into spoilers, but I did read the end of the manga, and it is uh, a very interesting way for them to go. And it's uh, it's at once satisfying and dissatisfying. It gets uh, it gets very woogity woogity with some of the more supernatural elements in yeah, the mythology. For sure. But uh, you know what? I don't want to. We can. We will. We'll go off to the spoiler part. But yeah, we'll get. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll talk a little bit more about that stuff. But the manga is released in uh, 2009, and or it starts being published in 2009, mm-hmm. and in 2012. A studio, a new studio named Studio Wit uh, announces a little thing called Project Attack. And that changes the game for this franchise. Yeah. So we covered this in our Ghost in the Shell episode, but Production IG is a prolific and uh, very popular anime production company. Uh, They kind of were put on the map with uh, the original Ghost in the Shell and uh, the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, and with a lot of uh, adaptations. They had a few hit series, uh, Blood Plus, you might have remembered. Um, Cromarty High School is another favorite of mine. But uh, within the studio, they had different sections, named after the sections from Ghost in the Shell. And Section 6 is where they kept their big dogs. This is where they had their uh, highest accomplished producers. This is where... They had their highest budget projects, and they had a few hits. Uh, Psycho Pass was a really big one that I remember uh, back in the 2000s that had the cool shifting guns and a really fun, high uh, kind of spiritual sci-fi concept. But they uh, that team put all of their money, all their chips on a series called Guilty Crown. They did market research to try and figure out what was the best 
uh, you know, kind of scenario. What were the best kind of characters? They got together their best animators. They did everything they could to make Guilty Crown a hit series. And it absolutely kind of just fell with a thud. It's, it did not do well. George Wada, the head of Section 6, was frustrated by all this, having worked his balls off on something that was supposed to be a surefire hit. And he and his uh, favorite producer, Tetsuya Nakatake, uh, basically were like, fuck this. We need to think bigger. We need to follow our own path. We got to do something different. And we're going to form our own studio. And they marched over to the president and was like, Listen up, old man. We're puppets are no longer on our on your strings. Snip, snip. That's the strings getting snipped because we're free men. You fucker, I quit. And the president was like, okay, that's cool. Um, I'm going to buy you out. You're now a subsidiary of Production IG. And they were like, fuck, okay. <laughs> and they needed a big project to put them on the map because uh, – even though an, the anime industry is very complicated, but it basically boils down to you do the balls to the wall stuff so that you can get steady work from other sources. It's kind of this weird mix of having to work hard to make a name for yourself and then get kind of uh, regular gigs just to keep the lights on. And it's a, it's a very intense song and dance to keep schedules aligned, to keep people working, to work with people when they're available, because the entire industry actually, uh, there's massive amounts of burnout, there's massive amounts of uh, talent shortages, and you got to keep all these third-party studios that you're working with, keeping them busy. Mm -hmm. It's all a very intense process. So having... Yeah, there was... Oh, go for it. I was just going to say, there was one point when uh, character designer Kyoji Asano uh, took to Twitter to try to get more folks on board mm -hmm. to help finish it out. I mean, that's the kind of operation we're talking about where they are just like all hands on deck because this thing gets so popular, um, and yet the, they have so much work to do. And then it's another situation, I forget what, uh, what but we've had a couple episodes like this where they're kind of also with bated breath waiting for Isayama to produce more manga content so that they can continue to adapt it. So that was another big reason why there was a huge gap between seasons one and seasons two, though. Also, we see Yama did work closely with the production teams on the anime, giving feedback and suggestions, and even doing that thing, which I, I love that these mangaka get to the opportunity to do this, where they go, you know, I kind of fucked that part up in the third arc mm -hmm. uh, where XYZ happened. Here's how I would have fixed it, and getting to retroactively fix things and perfect his work a little bit more through the anime adaptation. Uh, and that was the case for the per first part of season three uh, uh, of the show. So one of the things that the production starts off with immediately that uh, really kind of cracks the, the, the puzzle open is yes, they decide to uh, produce attack on Titan uh, a just because it is a, the setting was so unique and the action set pieces also were things that would give them a chance to show off their skills. Um, the series 3D director, Shuhei Yabata, came up with a 3D demo for an action sequence where the uh, Survey Corps was fighting a Titan and it was done completely in CG. And it really impressed the producers. But the series director for Studio Wit, uh, Tetsuya Araki, uh, was like, no, I want the best 2D animation and the best 3D animation. Uh -huh. And so a new workflow was invented, one where uh, the 2D animators would kind of do these enhanced storyboards, animation roughs of individual action sequences, then hand it off to the 3D staff that would replicate 
the 3D background of the village or the forest or wherever they were fighting, do all the camera pans, and then hand it back to the 2D animators who would then actually draw in the characters over the 3D footage that was generated. And this is a technique that is now used all over the place, but it made the workflow of these massive panning shots, this free-flying camera that is going above and over and around all these characters, ducking under the buildings, doing all these insane things that were previously, you know, if we talked about it in the Akira episode, would take thousands and thousands of man hours to pull off believably. Um, another thing they did is that they worked with a ton of incredibly talented action directors. Uh, specifically, uh, Arif, Arif, oh my God. Oh God, I, please let me pronounce this name. Arafiyama Imai was the first to actually utilize the uh, 2D, 3D thing for this uh, insane sequence in a animated trailer that they released for the series with Aaron running across rooftops, swinging around on his maneuver gear and leaping for towards a Titan that kind of immediately kind of threw the gauntlet on what an action scene in Attack on Titan looked like. And that trailer blew hype out the window. Nothing had looked like this before. Uh, other directors, uh, such as uh, Yasuyuki Ibarra and Yuko Sara, uh, were working off each other, each trying to outdo the other. It was this very competitive thing where they were trying to up the stakes and, you know, try new techniques and just present to the audience images and shots that they'd never seen before in an anime. Um, the character designer uh, that you mentioned, Kyoji Asano, uh, actually had to compete on an internal in-studio competition to be the one to decide the character designs. And he was the one who brought that distinctive, like inky, sketchy outlines on the characters cool. and also made the show kind of stand out. kind of actually is... Like a Street Fighter Four, Street Fighter Five kind of yeah. thing as well. Now that I think about it, yeah, that that inky kind of. Uh, he submitted look. fifteen individual expressions and camera angles for Aaron Yeager to really hit home, like just how these characters will look and operate in three D and feel this whole swath of emotions. Because when they're not fucking killing titans and swinging off of uh, high flying wires on gas powered harpoons. They are crying a lot and <laughs> screaming about how they fucking want to kill Titans. <laughs> the series was a massive undertaking. Uh, a lot of these action sequences took months to animate. Uh, George Wada, the guy originally from uh, Production IG who started the studio, would often have to board flights to hand deliver the finished master copies of the episodes because even an express delivery service would arrive too late. And by the time they actually finished animation and finished editing everything together, the team was pushed to their limits. Uh, Wada famously joked that the uh, most common meal at Studio Wit was energy bars. Mm. Staff would sleep overnight in their offices. Um, uh, the whole thing was just so insane that... Uh, but it was worth it because they were going to uh, make a name for themselves. This was their kind of business. This was their business card. This was their show of force to show the rest of the industry what they could accomplish. But they didn't realize this show would be such a runaway hit. They didn't know Crunchyroll was about to explode in uh -huh. America. They didn't know that the uh, shonen anime genre needed that kick in the pants. So by the time they like finished season one, they were burnt out. And Studio Wit had already lined up years of other production contracts. They worked on a movie called um, 
how that's this like sci-fi slice of life life thing that's completely different. Uh, they worked on some other series. So they basically needed four years before they could even start production again. The animators that I mentioned, Imai and such, uh, were freelancers. That's how the industry works. And those guys were already on uh, contracted onto other projects. So to fill that gap, this is where we got uh, Attack on Titan Junior High, the side series where all the characters are kids and it's uh, not as uh, violent or sad. Um, there was OVAs that were released. Uh, direct to theater, like uh, compilation movies were made. Um, the live action movie came out, uh, directed by uh, Shinji Higuchi. And a lot of people got mad because it did this like very weird sci-fi twist and they played around with the setting. But those were actually approved and suggested by Isayama himself. Um, so that wait that you were talking about, that's four years between season one and season two was literally just so they could finally get the original team back together to formally start it up again. Season two, they only committed to 12 episodes, but they already scheduled a season three to get produced. And they really upped the animation. Season two, Attack on Titan, is some of the best action animation ever made. Do you understand how hard it is to animate a horse, Holden? Oh, my God. Do you understand how fucking shitty it is to animate a goddamn horse? One time I tried to draw a horse and somebody was like, is that a fucking hot dog with a neck? <laughs> I was like, you know what, buddy? Go fuck yourself, dude. I mean, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to just get through art school over here. And yeah, I dropped out pretty quick. Half that season takes place on horseback, man. It's insane. Um... Another big issue is the Titans themselves are insanely detailed and insanely hard to animate correctly. If you get even one of those dumb muscle lines in the wrong place right. from frame to frame, it's gonna look like shit. Especially like the big, the bigger Titans that um, you know stand out from the pack. They all have really interesting design aspects to them and stand out. Yeah, for sure. There was a moment where they tried to replace the Colossal Titan, who's like the super big one with the exposed musculature that everybody knows. It's like the... Yeah, it's like on the cover and yeah. He's the mascot. It's a weird thing to have as your yeah. mascot, but he is the mascot, mascot Titan. Uh, was replaced by a 3D model and fans were like, this is bad. Boo. Keep working yourself to death for my benefit. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, those dope opening themes, uh, those were all, uh, most all done by the band Linked Horizon, also known as Sound Horizon, more of a music project than a band. Um, they go with Linked Horizon when they're doing stuff for like video games or uh, anime and stuff like that. Uh, Sound Horizon is like kind of their their own original works. The leader of the group's name is Rebo, who is also the only permanent member. So really just that's that person's uh, big music project. And they describe themselves as a fantasy band and are steeped in classical music. Their songs generally revolving around historical events and classic fairy tales. And in the mid-2000s, they did music for video games like Chaos Wars and the PS2. And uh, Rebo did work as Linked Horizon for the first time when they did the score for the Nintendo 3DS game, Bravely Default, which has a fantastic score. One of my first games that, got, weirdly enough, one of the first games that got me back into gaming really hard uh, when I got a 3DS and Bravely Default kind of set me down my path of like just murdering a bunch of JRPGs on that on that little 
handheld console. They are uh, also responsible for the first, second, third, and fifth opening themes for Attack on Titan. The other opening theme is uh, in the third season was done by Yoshiki, but that was the only one. They also did the fourth ending theme as well. And uh, that opening really, I think, was a big part of getting me Mm -hmm. into that show. That that the thing we butchered at the very beginning. <laughs> Actually, can we hear a, a second of that, uh, April, please? <sighs> It just gets you so fucking hype, like, for whatever. I don't care if it's like, you're going to watch a dog fuck a cat. I'd be like, fine. Is it on fire? This is awesome. You know what I mean? And then I'd watch that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just, they did such, and, and that makes so much sense that they would have that, like, fantasy um, historical background influence in classical as well. And uh, the soundtrack is composed, the score is composed by Hiroyuki Sawano, who has also scored the anime's Seven Deadly Sins and Kill La Kill, among many others, but very pedigreed uh, uh, anime mu- music scorer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and that music, man, especially those openings, like really, really are so strong, I think, and really a big part of the package. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. What else you got? So I, I honestly think the real MVP that took this whole enterprise from like, hey, this is a fun story to like, this is must-see anime really is the work of action director Arafumi Amai, who I talked about before. Um, we would, I would not know the name of Levi Ackerman if it wasn't for this guy's work. His fights in season two and three with uh, Kenny versus Levi and the final fight, or not the final fight, but the uh, decisive fight between Levi and the Beast Titan are took months to animate. Uh, Imai actually was told to uh, use footage of Alan Iverson to kind of capture what it looks like to see a uh, top-tier athlete in full control of his skills uh, in motion. The storyboards alone for that final Beast fight took a month to finalize and another three months to actually animate to completion and that it really I've been watching anime for 30 years and watching that sequence I felt I could not believe that this medium could shake me so viscerally to my core still it is breathtaking it is a physical experience watching this animation in in, uh, motion which is sad to talk about because after all this burnout, after all, uh, Studio Wit also had a ton of budget issues as um, they took on too many projects and kind of did not uh, make a profit. And the decision was reached within Studio Wit that they would not continue to make season four. They had to drop the project. It just wasn't, you know, they were just, everyone involved was just too burnt out. It, they weren't, it wasn't enough of a, you know, it just, they couldn't make the numbers work for them. This left uh, Kodansha, the publisher, and the TV studio NBS with a really tough decision to make because they needed a team that had the capability to continue this ungodly, I would say, once-in-a-lifetime level of production, uh, but would we have to do it under a much tighter deadline with a much tighter budget? And it wasn't to like make a name for themselves. They literally had to find a team to carry another team's ball across the finish line. And uh, after several studios turned it down, the team that got it was Studio Mappa. 
And MAPPA has done a lot of great work themselves. They do a lot of adaptation work uh, for mangas and games, but they are a solid studio. And um, instead of like a hand-picked rogues gallery of animation all-stars, it was uh, kind of just a bunch of people that had to be free. Uh, it was, season four was directed by Yuichiro Hayashi, who literally had just concluded uh, his work on Doro Hidoro. And he was a 3D guy. If you ever saw Doro Hidoro, it's on Netflix. It's a beautiful show that really does a lot to kind of bring 3D animation into the anime uh, uh, forum, I guess. That's a terrible word. <laughs> but one of the things they did to streamline production is they replaced a lot of the Titans with 3D models. And I think they did a hell of a job considering their limitations. Uh, they did a lot of very clever work with the frame timing, with the textures, with the lighting to make the Titans feel way more in-universe real than previous attempts to make the Titans 3D. It's also where the end game of the story kind of comes into fruition, where we deal with the truth of what happened in the basement, the political realities of what's going on in the uh, universe of the show. And uh, Aaron Yeager, our hero, kind of goes through a lot of profound changes that affects the path of the story as well. So it's really a thankless task. And I think all things considered, they've been doing a great job uh, with what they were uh, approached with. Yeah. It's it's a hard thing to kind of take someone's, you know, uh, shoot for the stars and have to like live up to that. I honestly, yeah. I if you're mad about how season four has been underwhelming or how it lacks a certain pizzazz, I just think it's, um, I think it's, you got to cut them some slack. The realities of anime production is a tough mistress. Totally, totally. Uh, to wrap things up, uh, just like to mention, there are a bunch of video games. Um, there are some visual novels that were included with the anime Blu-ray disc volumes, uh, certain ones. Uh, the one I played, I did play one of the video games because it did seem pretty fun, and it was. I didn't... Uh, I didn't stick with it. It kind of fell off it for, for reasons I'm just about to get into. The one I played was Attack on Titan Wings of Freedom. Uh, it was released on PlayStation consoles in 2016. And then later, I played it. I have it on Steam on PC. It's also out on Xbox One. And it was done by the Dynasty Warriors folks. So that's kind of probably why I fell off. Uh, Omega Force. Um, as, you know, Dynasty Warriors, known for its repetitiveness, uh, I, I kind of f fell off for that reason. But it is a hack and slash game. And it does really give you that vibe. Like... Even, even just to, to enjoy it as a simulator just for a little while of what it would be like to feel like what it would be like to be high flying around and taking down Titans. I think it did a really good job of of giving you that experience as a player. And so I actually would kind of recommend it. And, that they, you know, they hit they hit the story beats and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. It was it was actually surprisingly a lot of fun. I just, you know, after a little while, I was like, I'm good. But uh, yeah, it did get a sequel in 2018. There's mobile games. There's a there's like a I think like a RTS style game, yeah. uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And of course, we have to have it's Japan and it's anime and it's usually popular. So we have to have some kind of live action stuff. There was a play in the works, but it fell apart. Um, due to an accident that somebody in the place suffered. So oh my god! Are you, wait, the, it's literally the curse of Spider-Man. Turn off the dark. You just can't have musical actors in a fucking wire harness. Yeah. and expect it to go okay. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like that was a recipe for disaster. Uh, there is a live-action Japanese film though that was released in 2015, and it also had a mini-series, like a three-episode thing, and a sequel or second part titled "Into the World" that was released later that year. Um, there were creative differences with the first director. A new one came in. Isayama himself 
was like, let's just make this different. I yeah. thought it was maybe the production people, but no, no, no. The mangaka was like, look, the story has already been told, is the quote I, I have. And so many different characters are introduced. The setting has changed to Japan. And it's also maybe a sequel to the 1966 Toho kaiju film called The War of the Gargantuas, Mm -hmm. which is a uh, film centered around two giant hairy humanoid monsters battling in Tokyo. And uh, that is weird as, as hell. And just look up the trailer. It's that it, definitely, definitely. At the I'm very sad least. I didn't get to watch it for research. I got too yeah. sidetracked this week. It's so fucking weird. I, and it just it'll make you feel very uncomfortable watching that trailer with the way they depict the Titans and everything. Uh, and even more interesting is that Warner Bros. has been in negotiations for the film rights to the franchise, and IT director Andy Muschietti is signed on to direct the film. And, you know, I don't know, I, I'm not actually sure what the general consensus is of IT Part 2, but the way that the giant clown spider was handled, uh, and a lot of the just very disturbing imagery that um was in one of these of anime adaptations the are gonna hit and we're gonna and it's guys yeah. i've been talking about this up and down i think he might be able to pull it off is all i'm saying one yeah, of exactly. them is gonna get it right and the floodgates are gonna open it's it, as marvel comics were to nerds in the 90s anime was to nerds in the 2000s and the cycle will keep going and as soon as someone figures out a way to make anime movies as appealing as Disney made Marvel movies, it's, it's we're going to be off to the races and the next generation of weebs will like have their time in the sun the same way the comic book nerds did. This is, I've been screaming about this for like a decade now. It's going to happen. I will uh, just wanted to come back to a couple little bits that uh, we ended up going past when we got to the anime. Um, it's just, I thought it was really interesting that Isayama, um, he prefers to draw his manga by hand and he never switched to digital like a lot of people did because he likes it messy. He said the printed version that people read is flat, but the original copy that I draw is actually three-dimensional <laughs> from all the digging into the thick paper and slathering on whiteout that I do. I like having my paper get beat up as I go along drawing, which is, again, even the paper itself physically grotesque. And then just that the setting is heavily inspired by um, uh, a German city called Nordlingen, Nordlingen, which was built on the site of an impact crater left by a meteorite that hit Earth with an estimated speed of 70,000 kilometers per hour. And it is this like walled circle. Oh my God, uh, it really is. City. That's literally just the Attack on Titan City. Isn't that cool as shit? That's fucking go crazy. There. And that's pretty much all I've got. Oh, Do you want to talk a little uh, bit? There's a video on YouTube where someone uh, took a 4K drone footage and just has it fly around the rooftops and it absolutely looks like Attack on Titan. <laughs> that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, right? Isn't that awesome? I, I just thought that was really rad, so I wanted to make sure to get get uh, give that its due. Um, and yeah, as we wrap things up, Jake, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, this is now spoiler territory, uh, any final thoughts about the twists and the turns that happen in Attack on Titan and what's in that basement? Um, and spoilers here on out before we close. I will say... It going because I actually didn't know exactly how the story ended until I started researching this week. Um, it's very funny to me that just like Lost, another big mystery box show that took the world by storm, when all is said and done, when you whittle down the hows and whys and causality of events, uh, it turns out just like in Lost, the reason why everything is happening is because th- uh, a long time ago, some idiot fell in a hole with magic in it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, do you feel like the payoff w- was good? Do you or do you feel like it was lost? Yeah. Uh, by lost, I mean um, like the show lost. Having Aaron uh, ch- become the villain of the series, having become yeah, so twisted really and changed, and becoming this insane nightmare creature uh, bent on destroying the world is kind of a uh, reasonable uh, lesson about letting revenge consume you. And then they kind of back it off a bit with the idea that, oh, it was his fate. Oh, he kind of didn't want to. Oh, the magic corrupted him. I didn't, I was like, okay, whatever. They wanted at least his characters to have like a more sympathetic and uh, satisfying send off. But um, the introduction of what lies outside of Paradise Island, the Marleyans, that whole convoluted history really does kind of, uh, I think it is thematically consistent with the feelings of nationalism and uh, uh, victimhood that permeates the earlier episodes. And the idea that, uh, you know, for a good part of the end game of the show, it's human on human uh, interaction that is defining everything, I think is actually a little bit interesting. Yeah. That being said, I shotgunned all those chapters in a satisfying way. I didn't have to wait a month between month between month yeah. hoping that Aaron gets to the fireworks factory of having a cool Titan fight. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, there you have it. That is our episode on Attack on Titan. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Uh, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew for $5 a month. You can get a we- a weekly bonus episode. We have been doing the year that was 1980s, where we talk about each year of the 1980s and what th- what came out during that year, and kind of have discourse surrounding that. Or every other week, we do Wizard and the Newser, which is essentially a current event show. We talk about the video games we're playing and the things we're watching, and we talk about the news stories of the of the last couple weeks. And uh, that's also been a lot of fun to do. Fifteen dollars a month, you can join us for our Sunday study session. This last time, we watched some Attack on Titan episodes with only a couple people because it was a weird. It holiday was Christmas. Weekend. It was literally Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but please join us for that. We need more people in there uh, to just hang out with. Uh, the more, the merrier, for sure. Over on our Discord, um, catch me twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho uh that is um monday tuesday friday nights streams for me for this guy twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho jake follow me on twitter at best jake young to read all my thoughts and plops and get little tidbits and fun facts from the research of the week that i'm doing uh also if you go to youtube i'm streaming over at uh youtube.com slash puppet jared I am a VTuber. I am a virtual avatar for a generation that needs a virtual avatar. Uh, One of my favorite streams that we're doing on Thursdays is the Cartoon Dumpster, where I find the uh, animated shows from the 90s and 2000s that have been forgotten by time and copyright law, and we watch it together. There's some incredible, incredible discoveries we've made on that stream. Uh, If you've ever wanted to know if Tommy Wiseau's The Room could be uh, outdone by a shitty 2000 CGI animated show about vampire cars. Let me tell you, you should check out that story. Hell yeah. Uh, And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.